Well, the Lord be with you. Uh, it is a gift to get to share with you today in the ministry of the word. I am so grateful to Pastor John Brown, uh, a longtime friend uh, who invited me uh, to preach today. Uh, Holland really does feel like home to us. Uh, Pastor Jonathan shared at the beginning of the service that uh, my family and I spent 12 years here. I was the lead pastor at Fellowship Reformed Church on the north side, and uh, it's just, it's so great to be back. This summer uh, marks 20 years that I've been an ordained pastor. And so uh, it's, it's just been a summer where I've really been reflecting on God's grace and his faithfulness uh, in, in my life, in my vocation, and uh, a series that I've been preaching at, at the church where I serve, Trinity Reformed Church in Northwest Iowa. Um, I, what I've been doing this summer is, is I've been looking back on passages of scripture that have been transformational in my own life and in my own vocation. And, and looking back even at different sermons that I've preached over the years that have just been kind of a key part of my preaching life. And I'm excited to get to share with you this morning uh, one of my favorite passages in the entire Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 32, verses 22 through 31. And this passage of scripture was actually the, one of the first uh, texts that I preached in seminary uh, in my, my preaching class with the Reverend Dr. Timothy Brown, who was my professor of preaching. And uh, so this morning as I offer this, um, I, I want to dedicate this to, to Dr. Brown and to Nancy uh, and, and just offer it in part out of gratitude uh, for the way that he has shaped me as a preacher and a pastor. Let us pray. Oh Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts together be acceptable and pleasing in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. It's in the strong name of Jesus we pray and all of God's people said, amen. So let me set this up just a little bit um, before we get to the scripture. Uh, Genesis chapter 32 is, is actually part of a larger story, uh, the story of Jacob and Esau, uh, so if you're familiar with that story, then you know that, that this is one of the great sagas in all of the Old Testament. Uh, I mean, there's enough deception and betrayal and suspense in this story uh, to make a, a series on Netflix or Hulu and, and probably multiple seasons at that. I mean, there's that much material. It, it really begins in chapter 25. Um, if we went back even further, we, we could go back to chapter 12 with Abraham and Sarah when God promised to give them offspring uh, that would number the stars in the sky and that really through their family, uh, God would, would bless all the families of the, of the earth. Abraham and Sarah uh, ended up having a son in old age named Isaac and when Isaac grew up, uh, he married Rebecca and Rebecca was pregnant with twins. Uh, she gives birth to two boys uh, who, who come from the womb fighting. And, and this, I mean, conflict and struggle would really characterize the, the relationship between these two brothers for, the most of, uh, for most of their life. The first one comes out red and hairy, and they name him Esau, which in Hebrew literally means hairy. Uh, the second one then comes out clutching his, his brother's heels, and they name him Jacob because Jacob means it means heels or heel grabber. So there you have it. How do you like those names? Harry and heels. When the boys grow up, uh, they really um, 
both of the parents kind of have their favorites. So Isaac, you know, he favors Esau. Uh, Rebecca favors Jacob. Uh, Esau would turn out to be a simple-minded and really skillful hunter. Uh, Jacob was somebody who liked to kind of stay home with his mom, a mama's boy who was shrewd and clever like his mother. Well, one day, uh, Jacob dupes his simple-minded brother Esau into giving him his birthright for a bowl of soup. But this wouldn't be the worst of it. Again, if you're familiar with this story, uh, when it comes time for old Isaac, now blind to give his blessing to his eldest son, that should have gone uh, to Esau, Jacob gets some coaching from his mother, and he deceives his father. Uh, He puts goat skin on his arms in order to trick his dad into thinking that he's Esau. And so Isaac ends up uh, blessing Jacob instead of Esau. And and that was a big deal. To get this blessing, to carry the blessing was a huge thing. And this really ended up being the straw that would break the camel's back. Uh, Esau at this point has had it. He's red hot mad. He wants to kill Jacob. So Jacob is forced to flee for his life. He runs off to the land of his uncle Laban and he gets married to Rachel and Leah. And that's a whole other story that we're not gonna get into this morning. Uh, But they end up having lots of children, uh, Jacob with his two wives, and and he does really well for himself. And I want you to fast forward now. This is where we need to set it up for for chapter 32. Uh, 20 years later now, uh, Jacob decides that it's time to come home. So he's coming home a rich man, Uh, a large family, he's got servants, he has enough livestock to sponsor his own county fair, but he's also coming home a fearful man. Why? Because he's just learned that his brother Esau is um, really coming, uh, marching out to get him with, with an army of 400 men. So Jacob sends his family and his servants ahead of him across the Jabbok River, and, and he remains behind to keep the darkness company for what might be one last night of his life. Tomorrow, when he meets Esau, uh, there's a good chance that Esau will strike him dead on the spot. And in a very real sense, this would be the last night of Jacob's life. But not because Esau gets to him, somebody else is going to get to Jacob first. Hear the word of the Lord then from Genesis chapter 32, beginning at verse 22. That same night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maids, and his 11 children, and he crossed the ford of the Jabbok. He took them and sent them across the stream, and likewise, everything else that he had. Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until daybreak. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he struck him on the hip socket. And Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day is breaking. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then the man said, you shall no longer be called Jacob, but now you are called Israel. For you have striven with God and with humans, and you have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why do you ask me my name? And there he blessed him. 
So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, for I have seen God face to face, and yet my life is preserved. The sun rose upon him as he passed Peniel, limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now the Hebrews were master storytellers. And like any good storyteller, uh, they, they don't tell us too much. They don't give us all the specific details, but instead we're, we're invited to enter into the story ourselves, to find ourselves in the story, uh, to use our imaginations and to fill in the gaps, to wonder what it might have been like for, for Jacob to wrestle so intimately with this angel of the Lord, which is, is the Bible's uh, other way of saying uh, God himself. And this morning, I wanna help you use your imagination and enter this story, Uh, and I wanna do it by sharing with you one of my favorite contemporary storytellers, Frederick Buechner. And what I'm about to share with you comes from the the wonderful book, Son of Laughter. And if if Jacob was with us today, and if he was sharing what happened that night at the Jabbok River, perhaps he would tell the story something like this. Our bodies were slippery with mud. We were panting like beasts. We couldn't see each other. We spoke no words. I didn't even know why we were fighting. It was like fighting in a dream. He outweighed me and he outwrestled me, but he did not overpower me. He did not overpower me until the moment came to overpower me. And when that moment came, I knew that he could have made it come whenever he had wanted. I knew that that all through the night, he had been waiting for that moment. His knee was just beneath my hip, and the rest of his weight was above my hip. And then the moment came, and he gave a fierce downward thrust, and I felt a fierce pain. Actually, it, it was less a pain that I felt than a pain I saw. I saw the pain as light. I saw the pain as a a dazzling bird shape of light. The the pain's beak impaled me with light. It, It blinded me with the light of its wings. And in that moment, I knew that I was crippled and done for. I knew that there was nothing that I could do now but cling, and so I I clung for dear life. I clung for dear death. My arms trussed him, my legs locked him. And then for the first time he spoke. Let me go, he said, for the day is breaking. His words were more breath than sound. And they scalded the back of my neck where his mouth was touching. I wouldn't let him go. I wouldn't let him go for fear that the day would take him just as the dark had given him. You see, it was my life that I clung to. My enemy was my life. And my life was my enemy. Bless me, I said. I I will not let you go unless you bless me. You see, even if his blessing meant death, I wanted it more than life. Who are you, he said. What is your name? There was mud in my eyes and in my ears in my nostrils and in my hair. 
My, my name tasted of mud when I spoke it. Jacob, I said. My name is Jacob. You are Jacob no longer, he said, for you are Israel now. You have wrestled with God and with man, and you have prevailed. That is the meaning of the name Israel. I was no longer Jacob. I was no longer myself. The, the stranger said it. I, I tried saying the name the way that he said it. Israel. I tried saying the new name that I was to the new self that I was. I couldn't see him. I could see only the curve of his shoulders above me. I could see the first glimmer of dawn on his shoulders like a wound. Please, tell me your name, I said. I could only whisper it. Why do you ask me my name, he said. We were both of us whispering. He didn't wait for me to answer, but he blessed me just as I had asked him. I don't remember the words of his blessing, or even if there were words, but what I remember is the blessing of his arms holding me and the blessing of his arms letting me go. I remember as blessing the, the black shape of him against the rose-colored sky. I remember as blessing the one glimpse that I caught of his face. It was a face more terrible than the face of dark or pain or terror. It was the face of light. Words cannot tell of it. Silence cannot tell of it. Sometimes I can't believe that I saw it and that I lived, but that I only dreamed I saw it. And sometimes I, I believe that I saw it and that I only dreamed that I live. The sun's rim was just starting to show over the top of the gorge by the time I finally crossed the Jabbok. Bands of gold fanned across the sky. I staggered through the rocky shallows, one hip dipping deep with each step and my head bobbing. It is the way that I have walked ever since. From that day to this, I have moved through this world like a cripple with the new name that the face of light gave me that night by the river when he gave me his blessing and crippled me. When he gave me his blessing and crippled me. A blessing and a limp. Think about that. These two things go together. Friends, in this chapter, Genesis 32, in this story of Jacob wrestling with God, we are given a picture of God that is a very different picture than I think what most of us are used to. I mean, it's, it's a picture of God that almost sounds scary, doesn't it? Uh, what are we to make of this? What are we to make of this picture of God that, that comes at Jacob like an adversary in the night and, and wrestles him to the ground? Here's the thing. 
You know, Jacob was somebody who liked having God's presence and blessing, but he he wanted it on his terms. I mean, Jacob, he was a swindler. He was somebody who loved to try to take charge of his life, and, and he would do this with God so long as God fit into his agenda. You know, so long as, as God took care of him in the way that he wanted to be taken care of, then, then Jacob would claim God as his own. It was a transactional kind of relationship. And I, I think that, that we tend to want that from God as well, that, that we tend to be more attracted to a God who is like a genie in the lamp, you know, a God who can magically grant us wishes at our command, than a God who is the ruler of the universe, a God that we can bargain and manipulate with for our own ends. It, it, we, we, we like a God that we can control by, by rubbing the lamp and, and you know, we, we make our wish and we call upon him when we're in a bind, but then when we're done with him, we put him back in the lamp and set him aside and we get on with life as usual. But the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is no genie in a lamp. And, and believe me, that's a good thing. That the God of the Bible The God that we encounter in this story is a God who made a covenant with his people, with all of creation, and a God who is set on having a relationship with us, but it will be on God's terms and not ours. I mean, this is a God who has a plan and a purpose for our lives, for your life, and for this world that is so much greater than any one of our single personal agendas. I think what I want to suggest this morning is that this story of Jacob wrestling with God is really a story about grace. Now you may ask, grace? I mean, Brian, how is this a story about grace? And granted, it's not the kind of grace that I think we tend to envision. You know, this this sweet, amazing grace that nudges us along softly and tenderly. Uh, I don't know about you, but I I like that kind of grace. It's, It's not too obtrusive. It's not too demanding. It's the kind of grace that makes us feel happy and comfortable. But the grace that grabbed a hold of Jacob is a rough and intrusive kind of grace. It's a grace that that pursues us and wrestles us to the ground, locking us in its wounding hold. What am I talking about here? I'm talking about the grace that comes disguised in the form of, of unwelcome disruptions and disappointments and struggles in our life. I'm talking about grace that that sometimes comes even in the form of pain. Things that that blindside us and and knock us flat on our back and leave us fighting for our life. A grace that, that hurts. A grace that leaves us limping, but it's a grace that changes us and a grace that blesses us and that makes it amazing grace nonetheless. More often than not, if we're honest, I think it's this kind of grace that it takes for God to lay a hold of our lives for God to shape and mold us according to his purpose. It's the kind of grace that it takes for God to free us from the illusion that we're in control, that we ever really were in control. Elizabeth Ochtemeyer, an Old Testament scholar and preacher, I, I love the way that she says it. She puts it like this. She said, God engages us in battle in Jesus Christ because he wants to make us new men and women. For just as he fought with Jacob to make him a new and different man, God wrestled with Jacob to give him that blessing and to lock him into his purpose. And so too, God in Christ wrestles with us to rule over our lives, to pull us into the good purpose that he is working out on this earth. She goes on to say this, it's not always a pleasant experience. God can grab us and fight us and jerk us all the way around to walk a new path that we never dreamed of taking. 
It costs us something to have God wrestle with us until we reflect his will. I think that Elizabeth Ochtemeyer is right. That being molded and shaped in God's hands, it's not always a pleasant experience. Some of you know that right now because of what you're going through. Often it's painful and it's costly. Uh, It costs us our very lives. It costs us ourselves, our wills, our plans, our treasures. But is this not the heart of the gospel? I mean, do you remember the way that Jesus said it when he said that, that if you want to come after me, you've you got to deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, and that it's only in losing your life, it's only in letting go that we'll truly find life. When we're carrying a cross, we will invariably walk different. Uh, we'll walk in a way that's different from, from, from the way that the world works. We'll walk with a limp, but it will be a glorious limp. I just want to be clear that I'm not suggesting today that, that God is behind every experience of struggle in our lives. I think that would oversimplify things and it would trivialize real suffering that people are going through. Sometimes we struggle because of choices that we've made or choices that others have made. But what I am suggesting is this, that while God may not be behind every experience of struggle, we can have the assurance that God is in every experience of struggle that God will sustain us in every trial, and that if you dare to open your eyes, you may see God's face, that face of light. God there with you, God's arms holding you, and you can limp away with the assurance that by God's grace, even this experience, as dark as it may seem right now, can somehow be used for God's glory. You know, let me end with this. I think the wonderful irony of Jacob's story is that here, Jacob, whose name literally means heel grabber, Jacob, who was always trying to grab a hold of life, in the end finds himself grabbed a hold of a grace that is so much bigger than anything that he could have ever bargained for. When Jacob finally crossed the Jabbok River that next morning to face his brother Esau, uh, he was a changed man with a new name, and a new limp to prove it. He was now Israel, which means he who strives with God and humans and prevails. But this prevailing isn't the kind of prevailing that the world thinks of. I mean, this is a prevailing that comes only by way of defeat, only by way of letting go and clinging to Christ. It is a prevailing that comes only by way of surrender. So as you wrestle with God, as we wrestle with God and God wrestles with us, may we know that our God is with us in a way that is far too close for comfort. But let us cling to God today, cling to Christ today for dear life and for dear death. Rest your heart in him and in him alone. And as we come to this table, let us cry out these beautiful words of surrender spoken first by the prophet Isaiah, take my life, O Lord, for we are the clay, and you are the potter, and we are but the work of your hands. Let us pray. Gracious God, thank you that you are a God who is good and a God who is faithful. And even in seasons when we find ourselves wrestling with you, Lord, that you are a God who holds on to us, that you are a God who somehow works your grace in our lives in order to transform us more and more into the image of Jesus 
in order to direct our lives, uh, even when we're not, Lord, fully aware of how you're at work or where all of this is gonna lead, Lord, we can have the assurance that you are a God who will be faithful, that you are a God who always keeps your promises, and that you are a God who will bring to completion the good work that you have begun in us, not just for ourselves, but for your glory and for the sake of this world that you love. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.